All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. We've been in a series uh, called Be the Church. And so many of you guys know we've been walking through uh, 1 Corinthians, and we've been talking a lot about the fact that the church is not a building, it's not a service, uh, but it is a group of people uh, that God uses in the world. Like he wants to use us uh, to show people who he is all throughout the world. And so the, the book of First and Second Corinthians uh, is a local church, and Paul's writing a letter uh, to these people uh, in Corinth, to these Christians who are walking through different circumstances, and he's been addressing a lot of division in the church, and so they had kind of uh, been divided over some stuff, and Paul has been writing to them about the importance of unity and the fact that unity is important because people in the world look at the church And if they see us divided, then how are they going to believe in a God that calls and unifies people uh, from every tribe and every nation? And so that's kind of where we are uh, right now. But we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 21, and then we're going to go through the entire chapter of uh, 4. So if you're there, I'd love for you to follow along with me. So we'll start in verse 21 of chapter 3 and go through chapter 4, verse 21. So here it is. 321. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, and whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. And so, uh, as we've learned over the past few chapters, one of the main causes of division in Corinth were these leaders, right? And so, there was a few different leaders uh, that were, were preaching in the church in Corinth. And what had ha- happened is the people of Corinth uh, kind of have fit into the culture. Uh, Corinth was a very uh, Greek, obviously it's in Greece, and there was a lot of philosophy. And so as philosophy goes, people align themselves with different teachers uh, and, and kind of take those teachers as their leader. Well, what had happened is uh, this has kind of snuck into the church. And so instead of these people being aligned under God and, 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 and the word of God and submitted to Christ alone, they had began to align more with people. So one group wanted to be with Paul, one group wanted to be with Peter, one group wanted to be with Apollos, and they had kind of almost created different sects of, 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 of denominations kind of in the church. And Paul has been addressing this and saying, that's enough. Like no more aligning with a person, human, align with God and align with the word of God. The church is, 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 is a collective unit, uh, not submitted to a human leader, but submitted to Christ. The only good a human leader does is point you to Christ. And so he's trying to teach them about this. And now he's going about to go into uh, this idea of how we should regard human leaders in the church today, how you guys should regard me or Blake or Frankie or any of our elders or teachers uh, that stand up. Verse one of chapter four says this. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ, underline servants, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has Revealed. If you want to underline entrusted and out to the side, write the word steward. That's what he's talking about is this stewardship. They've been entrusted with the message, the word of God. Verse two, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Underline faithful. Verse three, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. 
Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. And so again, Paul is teaching them the teachers and the leaders in the church are servants. They're just stewards. They're instruments of God. And their responsibility is to be faithful to God. Like that's what I'm here to do is to not only be a servant to you guys and to God, but also uh, to steward you and, and teach you God's word. And then also be faithful to God above anything else. And that is my essentially my value uh, as a teacher and as a leader. And so, and Paul goes on to say, like, I, I really don't care what people think about me because he was getting a lot of judgment from the Corinthian church. And he's basically saying, I don't even judge myself. The only person that I'm worried about is God and what he thinks and what he thinks about me. And that's important for a leader in the church to understand because there's gonna be times where God asks you to do things that's not very popular. And in the Christian life, it's important to understand that the, the person's opinion that matters most in your life needs to be God. And that's what God has in store for each of us, leaders or Christians alike. Now, verse six, he says, now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Apollos is another teacher. So that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written then you will not be puffed up, underline puffed up, in, a, in being a follower of one of us over against the other. So again, he's, he's showing us that the Corinthians were kind of arrogant about this. They were puffed up, they were prideful about who they were following. And so he's about to address this. Let's see what he has to say, verse seven. For who makes you different from anyone else? Okay, Paul, hold on now. Uh, what do you have that you did not receive? He's kind of getting a little feisty here. And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. Now how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. So what is he doing? He's beginning to ask them, all right, you're prideful and you're arrogant. You think you've already arrived as a church but when I look at you guys and God looks at you guys, he sees immaturity. So y'all's definition of greatness is not the kingdom's definition of greatness. They're thinking riches and lack of suffering and, and just the good life is what the mature church looks like. And Paul's like, hold on for a second. Like you guys are off. You're not thinking like Christ. And so now he's about to show them here are what the apostles are experiencing right now. The people that are truly following Christ. Verse 9, for it seems to me that God has put us, apostles, on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, 
We are in rags and we are brutally treated and we are homeless and we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. And so he's saying, I'm seeing two different things. This is what I see in the life of the apostles and this is what I see in the life of you it seems like you guys have followed in the ways of the world and began to base your success and greatness on the world's definition, whereas the apostles seem, uh, that the world seems to not be so kind to these apostles uh, because they're preaching something that goes against the ways of the world. And so he's trying to hold them up in light of what they're doing to show them that there are two different ways and two different definitions of greatness, and one is God's and one is the world's. Verse 14, he goes on. He says, I'm not writing, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. I'm writing this because I love you, essentially. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And so Paul started the church in Corinth. He, he loves these people. He treats them as his spiritual children, is what he's saying. He has great love for them. And so 16, he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. So he's saying, and then he goes on, listen to this. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy. That's kind of Paul's right-hand guy. He says, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Hold up, Paul, hold on now. Uh, verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Underline that. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit. And so Paul is showing them that he wants them to imitate his life because his life is a life devoted to following Christ. And what he's saying is this is what the power of the Holy Spirit does in our life. He says, I'm not interested in your talk. Like you're talking like you know God, but your life is being arrogance is what is coming out of your life and there's no room for arrogance in the kingdom of God. Like the gospel doesn't produce arrogance. And so he's saying, when I come to you guys, I'm gonna send Timothy to remind you of what it looks like to walk out this Christian life. If they hated Christ, they'll hate us. If they persecuted Christ, they're gonna persecute us. And so we can't just align with the world and begin to live like the world just because the way of Christ is hard. He's saying, no, I love you guys. We must live this out because this is what God has called the church to do. And I can tell you this, there's nothing that this world needs more than people just like you and I, Christians, leaders in the church, uh, normal everyday Christians that can look at people around them and say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Like that does way more than any sermon that I preach ever could do. It's when a person in your life, you can look at them and say, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm committed to following Jesus and would you follow me 
as I follow Christ. Like this is what the church needs. This is what the world needs. And so today I wanna focus in on three very simple things. And I believe this chapter is all about leadership and all about uh, what it looks like to lead others when it comes to uh, the Christian faith. And so here's what I want you to understand. In this chapter, Paul is writing uh, to the Corinthian people, and he's addressing the, the, the pastors in Corinth at that time. But I want you to understand that every person in this room is a leader. Uh, maybe not in the church. None of you are pastor. You may not want to be a pastor or a preacher, any of that. That's okay. But here's what I'd say. A leader is somebody that has influence with another. Right, so whether you're sitting in this room and you're a coach, or whether you're sitting in this room and you're a business leader, or whether you're sitting in this room uh, and you're on a team of some sort, or whether you're sitting in this room and you're a mom or you're a dad, like people look to you as an influencer. And so this message applies to you, and I believe there's a lot that we can learn from this. And so I wanna show you three things that Paul points out in this passage. The first is the motivation of a godly leader. I'll go ahead and give you all three where you don't miss my note-taking skills here. The second is the humility of a godly leader. The humility of a godly leader. And then the third is the example of a godly leader. So let's talk about each of these. The first one is the motivation of a godly leader. Let's look at verses one through five one more time. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes because he's gonna bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. You know, a lot of people miss this. Uh, They think Christianity is just about doing things, right? It's just about doing. And the Bible does say to be doers of the word, but the Bible's very, very clear that our heart matters to God. Like he doesn't just want us to be doing things. God wants our heart. He doesn't just want our actions. He wants our heart and our heart to overflow into actions. Our motives matter to God. What motivates us matters deeply to God because actions done without God's heart uh, can be sinful. Like godly actions done without the heart of God can be detrimental in the kingdom of God. And so it's very important that we understand that our heart matters before God. This is why Paul says in in verse five that God's coming and the way he sees judgment is that he's going to expose the motives of the heart. So when God judges you and I, what he's going to judge is not just actions. He wants to know the motivations of our hearts. And as a leader, we can learn a lot from this. And as Christians, we can learn a lot from this. And so there's three things I want you to think about. Letter A is this, that God wants us to have the heart of a servant. Like we are servants, like servants of Christ is what Paul wants us to know. This is how they ought, like the Corinthians ought to regard Paul, but also how we should regard ourselves as servants of Christ. Interestingly, uh, the word that Paul uses here for servant 
is not the normal word that we see in the Bible, right? And I'm talking in Greek right now, so let me, let me fill you in. So the normal word for servant in the Bible in Greek is doulos, which is the same word used for uh, slave and servant, uh, and, and, and you see it throughout uh, the Bible. A lot of times Paul will introduce himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. But here we get a specific word uh, in the Greek that actually means an under rower, right? How many of you guys have watched rowing in the Olympics before? Um, and you see, you know, you got one guy that's calling out, row, and you got four or five that are just in there rowing like a team. And if one of them gets off, it messes up the whole, the whole thing. Well, Paul's idea of being a servant here is that he's a rower and that God is the captain. Like God's the one saying, row, and then Paul's rowing. So the idea of being a leader is that we are in line with Christ, like that he is the captain, that leadership in the church and in Christianity is not about the leader, it's about Christ, and that we move when he says move, and when he doesn't say move, we don't move. And when others are telling us to do this or that or the other, it doesn't matter because we're not marching to the beat of their drum. We're marching to the beat of God's drum, and God is the voice that we're listening to, and God's word is what we are listening to. And this is what it means to be a servant leader, is that we are serving Christ, that our aim is to serve and please him. This is why the Bible teaches no other kind of leadership. The idea of being a leader in the Bible is to be a servant, and it's important that we understand that. It means that it's not about us, that we're not in it for our glory. We're in it for his glory. It means that we strive to do his will, not our will. And those are important things to understand. You see this in Christ's life. He modeled this perfectly for us. Uh, you see, uh, everything that Jesus did while he was on earth was to please the Father. My aim is to please the Father. Uh, my aim is to, to glorify the Father. He lived for God's purposes, uh, for God's will, for God's glory. And this is what it means to be a Christian. And this is what it means to be a leader uh, in God's church. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Paul takes us a little bit deeper into this mindset. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus did, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want you to write this down. As a Christian, my primary identity is servant. As a Christian, my primary identity is servant. As a Christian leader, as a Christian mom, as a Christian dad, as a Christian uh, boss, as a Christian coach, my primary identity is servant. Serving is not something that I do. Serving is who I am. Uh, we say it this way at our church, saved people serve people. Like there, there's no, I'm saved and I don't serve. I don't wanna be a servant. Serving's not really my gift. No, no, no. To know Christ, to follow Christ is to embrace the identity of a servant. If I'm preaching, I'm in it to serve. I'm in it to serve Christ. I'm in it to serve you guys. If I'm serving in our kids ministry or in our student ministry, I'm in it to serve Christ and I'm in it to serve the students. If I'm a husband, if I'm a wife, I'm in my marriage to serve. That's my identity. 
Uh, I, let me help you out. If you're having issues in marriage, 99% of the issues that I see in marriage, 99% of the issues in my marriage are caused because I've shifted away from this identity as a servant. It's important that we embrace this. If I'm coaching, I'm in it to serve. If I'm eating at a restaurant and somebody is serving me, I'm in it to serve. This is the, in, this is the identity primarily of a Christian. Joby Martin, one of my favorite pastors down in Jacksonville, says it this way. If serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. If serving is something that you look at and say, ah, no, I'm, I'm past that. I've moved past that. I'm too good to, to do this. I'm too good to clean up. I'm too good to vacuum. I'm too good to serve in kids' ministry. I'm too good to serve here. If, if serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you because the Bible teaches to be great in the kingdom of God is to serve. Like That's what greatness is all about. And, and, and really, the truth is, is that everybody really wants to be a servant until you're treated like a servant. Have you ever thought about that? Like when somebody begins to treat you as if you are a servant, uh, that's when your motivation begins to come out. Uh, because if your identity is, is to be a servant, then you don't mind that. But if your identity is that this ain't who I am, this is just something I'm doing, then when somebody treats you like a servant, then it rubs you uh, the wrong way. That's when we find out what your heart is. And I can tell you honestly that this changed everything for me. It was about probably three years, uh, this is how stupid I am, three years after uh, I'd started preaching. I, I remember I was in Statesboro, I was working at our church there, and uh, I was preaching at Statesboro High School. You know, there was a couple thousand people out in front of me. I'd preached a few times. I always got very nervous. I still get nervous to preach. Um, and and, and I, 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 was, uh, I like to be prepared. I'm the type of guy that wants to be prepared for what I'm doing uh, to the point where I was borderline anxious when I would get up to preach. I, was, I, was, uh, I, I would memorize my sermon, like I would work hours upon hours to get this sermon that I thought was gonna be great. And then my routine was on Thursday nights, I would uh, preach to the wall for the first time. And then Friday, I would get up and I'd preach the wall again. Friday night, I'd preach the wall again. Saturday morning, I'd preach the wall again. Sunday morning, I'd preach the wall again. And then, I, boom, I'd go. So by the time I preached, I'd already preached it four or five times. I had the thing memorized. And, and I remember standing up on this specific Sunday, and it was like God spoke to me audibly. And, and before I went on stage, I felt like he had spoken to my heart and said, Billy, this is not about you. This is not about you preaching a good sermon. Like, you are here to serve me. Like, you are here to serve these people. That's what preaching is all about. And this changed everything for me. Because I, since that day, I've never felt the weight of having to change a person. I've never felt the weight of that a person's salvation is dependent on whether I preach a good message or not. And it was like God was, was teaching me that it's not my job to save people. It's not my job to control people. It's not my job uh, to, to make people do something. My job is to be faithful to God, to be faithful to God's word, and to trust that the spirit of God is going to do what God has promised that it's gonna do, which is to change lives and to transform people to be more like Christ. And this is what it means when we embrace the identity of a servant. Our goal is to be faithful is to be faithful. There's no pressure on you. You're just serving because you love God. 
And it's an overflow of what God's done in your life. What a privilege that we can just serve God and God promises that he's gonna do a work in us and through us. To be a godly leader is to serve, nothing more and nothing less. Secondly, Paul says in verse one that we are stewards. Stewards, he says, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So what is this idea of entrusted or this idea of stewardship? Uh, Well, a steward is uh, essentially a manager. So think about like a store manager, so to speak. Let's say uh, you own a store and you have a manager. Uh, That manager works for you. The manager really doesn't own anything. Uh, The only authority that they have is the authority uh, that you give them as the store owner. They don't have power over employees. They don't have uh, any of these things. They're just kind of managing and doing what you've entrusted them to do. Well, the Bible talks about the Christian life a lot like a manager, like God The idea that we are God's stewards or God's managers. And so we need to understand that to be a Christian is to be a steward. To be a godly leader is just to be a godly steward. That's what it is all about. And a good steward understands three very simple things. The first is that God owns everything. God owns everything. Uh, He's in control of everything. Secondly, everything I have is a gift including the breath in my lungs. So he's the steward, he's in control, and everything I have is a gift from him, which should produce gratitude in my life. But with, 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 with entrustment comes responsibility, which is the third one. My responsibility is to steward whatever he gives me for God's purpose and for God's glory. And so this is the idea of stewardship, is that everything I have, most of the time, when a preacher talks about this, usually they will go to money. And this is a huge idea when it comes to your money is that everything I have financially is a gift from God. You say, well, Billy, I went to college. I'm, I, I got a degree. I got this job. I built this business. What do you mean the money's not mine? Well, you, you, if, without God, you wouldn't have breath in your lungs. Start, that's one. And then we can continue to go down the list. But God has given you and entrusted you with everything that you have, talent, time, ability, uh, money, uh, influence, leadership. All of these things come from God. And when we see it the way God wants us to see it, we then begin to ask God, how do I steward all of these things that you've given me and entrusted to me for your purpose, for your glory? And this is the idea that Paul is talking about. Specifically, in this case, he's referring to uh, preachers stewarding the revelation of God. So in this, in this time, in Corinth, they wouldn't have had a Bible. They would have probably had the scrolls of the Old Testament. Uh, and then the New Testament, obviously, was in process. So he wouldn't have been able to open up to 1 Corinthians and do this because he was writing 1 Corinthians. So, but now, these revelations of God, praise God, for our early church fathers, have been preserved. So that now you and I literally can open up this Bible and get the revelation of God. Like it is revealed to us. It is living and active and God wrote every piece of it and because of it now we have access to the true revelation of God. And so in this case, what Paul's saying is as a leader in the church, it is our responsibility to steward the word of God and steward the revelation of God and steward the message of the gospel. 
And so we must steward this well. This is a message that didn't have to be given to us, but was given to us by God. This makes you really think about the people that Heather and Cheyenne are going out to reach and that we're going out as a church to plant a church among. Like, they can't open their Bible and see the revelation of God. Can God reveal himself through nature? Yes, but the message of the gospel comes through people. And so as we begin to go out, we're going to bring the revelation of God through God's word and, and giving them the rev full revelation of God. And we're gonna send people with the spirit of God to show, show these people who Christ is in the gospel. And we're praying that God would empower that and he would go before us and, and, and we would be able to reach these people that have no access to the gospel message, no access to the revelation of God. And so, but for us that now have the revelation of God, this means that we need to value and steward the word of God very, very well. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that the revelation of God is a gift. Like I know we have five Bibles in every house in this room, but literally the Bible is a gift to us. There's people that don't even have it and can't get it if they wanted it. We can buy it on Amazon and have it here tomorrow, maybe today if, if you got uh, your prime stuff right. And our leaders in the church are responsible to teach it and proclaim it. This is why it's such a big deal that we preach God's word. Like, if a preacher is preaching what they think, and they're giving you their thoughts and their opinions, don't listen to it. Like, literally, for me to get up here and tell you, what I think or five ways that you can become a better person or three ways to do this or, or whatever it is that I have an opinion of is literally to slap God in the face and say, your revelation is not good enough. Like, I know better than you. And I'm gonna tell these people what I think and now they're gonna follow me instead of follow you. That's essentially what it's like. A person not teaching it ain't gonna tell you that. But if you're listening to somebody and we have access to thousands, thousands of teachers through Facebook, through Google, through social media, all this different stuff. But I'm telling you, the only good that a Christian leader can do for you is to point you to God's word and to expose the context of what it means. And if they're doing anything other than that, I don't care how it makes you feel, I don't care if it gives you little frizzlies in your hair, your, your, all these things, you need to cut it off. And you need to focus in on the revelation that God's given us because it is the trustworthy word of God. This is why biblical counseling is such a big deal. And the people that you're listening to, if they're not pointing you to the truth of God's word, then they're not doing anything for you. And so we need to be a, a group of people that trust the word of God and that steward it well. This is why I could take you to hundreds of scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God, literally spoken by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we're interested in teaching or rebuking or correcting or training or being equipped to, to, to do the work of God, what do we need? The word of God. The word of God is sufficient to do the work of God empowered by the spirit of God all around the world. This is, this is sufficient. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. 
It's living. I'm telling you, this is a living word. It's not just a book. It's empowered by the Spirit, and it definitely brings about transformation in our lives. This is why it's essential that we preach the gospel. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So if we want to see salvation happen in our church, in the lives of people around us, then we need to be sharing the gospel. The gospel is the message of Christ and who he is and the good news of what he's done on the cross. And God's word is a gift to us. So may we be a church, may we be a people that value God's word and that give it and steward it well. Lastly, Paul points, points us to faithfulness. Uh, he says we prioritize faithfulness. Verse two, he says, now it is required that those who have been entrusted and been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any other human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, we will receive our praise from God. Paul says a leader, as a leader, and really as a Christian, our primary goal should be faithfulness. Like that's our primary goal in life is to be faithful uh, to God. I love the way FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, taught me this very early on. Fellowship of Christian Athletes talks a lot about living for an audience of one. Uh, you've probably seen AO1 on all kind of stuff uh, that they do. It, what The principle is that whether you're playing sports, whether you're in the classroom, whether you're in life, whether you're in your marriage, whether you're behind closed doors, that there's always an audience of one that you are concerned with. There's always an audience of one, and that audience is Christ, is God, is, is, is you are worried about him and him alone. So whether you're behind closed doors or whether you're in the public, you're living for, to be faithful to this audience of one person. It doesn't matter what all the rest of the people think about. It matters what God thinks, and that becomes the driving focus of your life. And just ask the question, whose opinion mattered most to Paul? Just from this text, did people's opinion matter? No. I mean, maybe a little bit, but he says no. Lost people's opinion matter of Paul? No. Saved people's opinion matter to Paul? Maybe a little bit, but not really from this passage. Other church leaders' opinion matter of Paul? Uh, not really. Paul was focused on one opinion. That was God's opinion. He said, I'm, I don't even judge myself. Like, I don't even trust my own judgment of me. I hold myself up in light of God and in God's word, God's command, what God wants of me, and that's what God is going to expose uh, before all. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you because God's going to expose the motives of my heart. So write this down. Faithfulness is the primary goal of the Christian life. As a Christian leader, faithfulness is your primary responsibility. When God's opinion matters more than anything else in my life, then faithfulness has become my primary goal. And it's very important for us to understand this, not only as, as leaders, but as, as Christians. Like, hear me when I say this. You can't always make people happy and make God happy at the same time. Like that, that, that can't, it's not gonna happen all the time. There'll be some times where you can be obedient to God and people are going to be excited about it. 
I mean, I think about Heather and Cheyenne. They come here, we're announcing that they're being obedient to God and we're fired up about it, clapping, everybody's praying, people are crying, you know, they're excited. But then they walk into a room with family members and they walk into a room, into a country with people that don't believe in God. You think they're gonna be excited and cheering them on and excited about what they're doing? No, they're not. They're not gonna understand. Maybe hostile towards it. So we need to understand that making people happy and making God's happy at some point in our life is going to be at a crossroads and we have to choose to make God happy and please him. We cannot please God and please people. Listen to the way Paul says this in Galatians 1. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Question mark. Or am I trying to please people? Question mark. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ, exclamation point. You cannot please people and serve Christ. We must serve Christ, and then we leave it up to the others if we please them or not. But our priority is to please God. So here's my question. As a leader, as a Christian, what is your motivation? Is it to serve, to serve Christ, to serve others? Is this what drives you? Is it, is it to, to be a good steward, to, to, to be found faithful before God, to invest the gifts that he's given you, the money that he's given you, everything that he's given you for his glory and for his purposes, to hear the well done, good and faithful servant at the end when you stand before God? Like does faithfulness to God drive you even when the world around you is telling you not to be faithful? Like what voice is the loudest in your mind? Is it God or is it others? As a Christian, our motivation is secure in Christ, to be a servant, to be a steward, and to be found faithful. The second thing Paul teaches us in this passage is the humility of a godly leader. You may have not seen this when you first read it, but as you think about the context of, of the whole situation, this is definitely what Paul is addressing. Listen to verse six. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And then he goes on and starts asking them a questions. But as you read the context, the beginning of chapter four, the end of chapter four, I just want you to think about some of the words that Paul uses to describe the Corinthians. Puffed up. Uh, he calls them arrogant. He, he calls them boastful. He calls them worldly. He calls them uh, divided. Uh, these things are the opposite of godly. Like these things are the opposite of what the gospel produces inside of us and inside a person. Uh, I want you to write this down. The essence of sin is arrogance. The essence of sin in our life, this is how we know when we, we've not repented and we're, we're walking in sin, is that we are prideful and arrogant, and that's our posture. But the essence of salvation is humility and submission. So this is how you know when a person is right with God, that they live in uh, humility. They're humble. They don't talk about themselves all the time. They talk about God and what he's done in their life. The sure sign that a person is not walking with Jesus is pride and arrogance. 
And the sure sign that a person is walking with Jesus is humility and submission. The Corinthians were arrogant. They were arrogant in their speech. They were arrogant towards other people. They were arrogant towards Paul. Uh, They were arrogant. And yet, all of a sudden, they were walking in what Paul calls sin the whole time. And this is exactly what arrogance does, is it blinds us. It blinds us to our sin. It blinds us to our need for God. Uh, It blinds us uh, to, to, to God's word. It hinders our spiritual growth. And literally, it ultimately destroys our relationship with God. This is why uh, pride is, is the granddaddy of all sin. Because it literally makes us feel and hear like we don't need God. Like we, we're sufficient on our own. I can do what I want to do. And this is why Paul is confronting their attitude so strongly. He starts asking them questions. What makes you so superior? You think you're better than everybody? Why do you think you're better? And here's the thing about Paul. Paul is the, the biblical definition of meek. I mean, if this dude's in a courtroom with you, the dude can argue. I'm just going to tell you. He's smarter than you. He knows the Bible more than you. Uh, he, he's quick on his feet. I mean, the dude would have made an incredible lawyer. Just read the book of Acts, uh, read the book of Romans. I mean, he writes it literally uh, like a lawyer. And so he gets, I mean, they're trying to step up toe-to-toe with Paul. And Paul's like, if you want to go toe-to-toe, we can go. And then he just kind of lets it out briefly. But then he comes back at the end and he's like, hey, I'm not, I'm not trying to shame you. I know I just destroyed your argument, but I'm not trying to shame you because I love you. But, but he's, he's hitting at the fact of you're not superior. You have nothing that you didn't receive. You're not thinking like servants of God. You're thinking uh, like worldly people, and you're not thinking like Christ. And then he goes on to contrast himself with them and the other apostles and says, hey, there's a clear difference in your definition of greatness and success and God's definition of greatness and success. You think because your life is glamorous and you have money and you're ruling people and you're reigning and doing all these different things that you're in God's will and that you're great in the kingdom of God, but I'm here to tell you greatness in the world and greatness in the kingdom of God are not always the same thing. I want you to listen to how uh, Joby Martin says this. He says, "How, how important your position is in the world's eyes has nothing to do with your position in the kingdom of God. He says, do you want to be great? Then it will be your posture and proximity to Jesus that make you great, not your position or your power. The Bible teaches so clearly on this, and I can take you to 100 scriptures, but I'm just gonna give you three. The first is James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So do we have to lift ourselves up and elevate ourselves? No, if we're a Christian, We humble ourselves before God. If he chooses to lift us up, then he'll choose to lift us up. If he doesn't, then he doesn't. It doesn't matter because we're in it for God. We're not in it for elevation. So whether this church never grows or this church dies or this church blows up to 10, 12,000 people and we plant churches all over the world, it doesn't matter. What matters is that I'm faithful to God and that I'm, I'm humble before God and I have to constantly remind myself of that. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if I'm prideful and I'm arrogant, the Bible says that God will directly oppose me and it's his grace that he does oppose me to humble me so that I can get back right where I need to be with God. Isaiah 66, 2, but this is the one to whom God will look. He who is what? Humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. So here's my question. Is your life characterized by humility, or is it characterized by arrogance? 
and pride? Are you more interested in worldly greatness or kingdom greatness? Like what means, what drives you? Because godly leaders, Christians are humble. Christians serve. Arrogant people look to be served. They're more, uh, arrogant people try to make God's kingdom about themselves. It's literally as easy as these two slogans. Godly people are about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Arrogant people live by the motto, it's all about me. They may not say that, but when you get to the crux of their life, that's what it is. It's either all about Christ or it's all about me. And we need to be able to see that. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 20, says it best. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant. That's how God defines greatness, humility and service. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May we be a church, may we be a people that are characterized by humility and by service to Christ. Three, the example of a godly leader. So not only our motivation, not only our humility, but this is probably my favorite. Paul talks about the example of a godly leader. Let me read it, verse 14. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you did not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to what? Imitate me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and he's going to remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. And so Paul's showing them uh, that there's nothing more powerful in the church and in the life of a leader and really in the world than a person that can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I mean, it's, it's so important. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's gonna say it again. Follow me as I follow Christ. This is the cry of a godly leader. There's nothing more powerful in the church, in the world, in your family, in the workplace, on a sports team, as a coach. There's nothing more important and powerful than a person that can say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Listen, there literally, if I could pray one thing for our church for the rest of my life, one thing, my prayer was that, is that God would raise up hundreds of people in this room and, and, and as we continue to grow that would live this out and say, I'm not perfect, but I'm following Christ and I'm devoted to Christ. And if you wanna follow Jesus, you can follow me as I follow Christ too. And we can help each other in this race. This is the cry of a powerful church. It will not be a sermon that I preach that transforms this community. It will be you and I scattering out all across this community, all across this world, and following Christ and inviting others into our life to show them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so the question becomes, what does it mean to be an imitate me leader? And I can't preach this, I can preach a whole sermon on this, but I'm gonna give you five little things to write down. I'm just gonna say one thing after each and I'll let you kind of dig in in small groups this week. The first uh, characteristic of an imitate me leader is love. 
love. Love is the most distinctive characteristic of godly leadership. We see it in Paul. We see it in Christ. It is the foundation. You cannot lead people that you don't love. At least lead them to a good place. And as a Christian, if God's called you to lead, he's first called you to love the people. Secondly, deep relationships. Relationships are the key to discipleship. You cannot, uh, God cannot influence a person through you that you're not in a relationship uh, with. Not romantically, I'm talking about in a friendship uh, with. No missionary dating around here. Um, God wants us to share life with people. God wants us to be honest and transparent. He wants, them, he wants us to invite people into our life to see the real us. Not just the person that shows up on Sunday that's all cleaned up and ready to go. I'm talking taking them home to the messy house with food slung everywhere, with kids' toys all over the place. He wants us to invite people into the real us and allow them to see what it's like to pursue Christ in the midst of a crazy world. Thirdly, consistent lifestyle. People hear what you say, but they're gonna become who you are. That's really good. You need to write that down. People hear what you say. Like, talk is good, but people are gonna become who you are. And that's important to understand that your life is not just talk, but that we're backing up what we talk. Like, inconsistency between what we say and what we do produces inconsistent, hypocritical Christians. And so we, as Christ, not called to be perfect, but to be honest and to allow people to see our pursuit to live out what Christ tells us to live. Again, most people do not need another sermon about Christianity. Most people need, I'd say most people, every person needs an example of Christianity lived out in front of them. This is what transformed my life. Listen, in college, I joined my first connect group, and I'd heard a 100 sermons, but I'd never been around a group of people that took their relationship with God serious and that were devoted to Christ. And when I got in that room, I figured out really quick they had something that I didn't have, and what they had is what I wanted. And over the next year, six months, uh, two years of my life, I began to see what it was like to really have a relationship with God. This is why we are so big on connect groups. If you're in here and you say you're not a part of a connect group, today, sign up for a connect group. Be a part of this. This is the most life-changing thing in our, in our church. It means way more to me than this sermon, that you can be in an environment with a group of people that are trying to live this thing out, and that is going to be what changes people's lives. For humility, when my heart is right with Jesus, humility will be my posture. Like, humility is the result of a person that loves Christ. Like, there's no room for arrogance and pride in the kingdom of God. We can't understand who God is and who we are and what Christ has done for us, what we could never do for ourselves, and walk into a room and be boastful and prideful. This is our boast is in Christ. And so there's no room for us creating levels in the church. Like literally, the same invitation that God gave to us is the same invitation that we're spreading to people around us, is that they need the same Christ that we need. Humility is not thinking more or less of myself, it's just thinking of myself less. It's focusing on God and focusing on other people. 
And then lastly, power. So love, deep relationships, consistent lifestyle, humility, and power. When God's power is at work in us, it's noticeable and it's contagious. Literally, it is the word for power in the Bible is dynamo. What does that sound like? Dynamite. If I set off a stick of dynamite right here before y'all got in here, would y'all notice? Absolutely. This is what the power of God does in our life. When the gospel gets a hold of us, our lives begin to change. The primary work of God's power, which is the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, is life change. We talk about this a lot in heart and soul. This is sanctification. The primary responsibility of the Spirit in our life is to make us more like Jesus. That's what it does. So that when we go out into the world as God's church, people don't have to come to church to see Jesus. They can see you and see Christ. This is what the Spirit of God empowers the church to do. And so for us, as we strive to be these imitate me leaders and to be these disciple makers all throughout this world, we must do it with five things, love, deep relationships, a consistent lifestyle, humility, and God's power at work within us. So here's my question as we end. Are you an imitate me leader? Like, can you look around at your kid, at the people that you coach, at the people that are a part of your life and say, follow me as I follow Jesus? Have you ever noticed that when Jesus comes up in the gospels, he doesn't ask people if they wanna be saved. He doesn't ask them if they wanna be baptized. He didn't even ask them to come to church. What's he asked them? Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. So every person in this room, the invitation of Christ is clear. And that invitation is will you follow him? Not will you come to church, not will you get baptized, those may be a part of it, but he's asking will you follow him? Will you lay down your life and begin to live the life that he's called you to live. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Billy, I've never committed my life to follow Christ. I've been living for myself. I've been kind of going my own way. But I've realized today that all sin leads to destruction and death. And I don't wanna live that anymore. Today, I wanna turn to Christ. I wanna turn from my sin and turn to Jesus. I wanna trust that he's done everything necessary to save me, and he did that on the cross. He paid for my sin and forgave me. The Bible calls that salvation. You repent and you turn and you trust in Christ. So if you're here this morning, you say, Billy, that's me. Today's the day of salvation in my life. I'm gonna ask you to be bold. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to get you some resources. If you're here and you say, Billy, that's me, I want you to raise your hand. Raise it high. Anybody in here, you'd say, Billy, that's me. I'll give you a second. Anybody else? Say me. And for the rest of us, there's, there's next steps. Maybe today the next step is repentance. Maybe today you know there's something in your life, specific, God's already put his finger on it, that's keeping you from being an imitate me leader. I pray today that you would, as we sing this last song, you would deal with God. Just give it to him. Or maybe you're here today, and all of us here today are called to make disciples. So maybe today you're making that commitment. God, I wanna be used by you. God, would you show me a person 
that I can begin to follow you with in my life. So Father, whatever it is, Lord, I pray today would be the day that we respond to you. God, would you give us the courage to take the steps that you've asked us to take. God, you're so good to us. God, you're so faithful. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Would you stand up and sing?